As we get started this morning, um, I've been at this for a lot of years now, and uh, the work that I have basically flown under is called Heartbeat. And it began uh, years ago as a radio program that was designed specifically for those who are not in church on Sunday, those who are outside religious walls. Uh, and it was carried on all the networks, finally, and armed forces. And I still hear from people who heard that program. And it's always wonderful to hear the stories that they tell and how from that little word they found a way to live and a way to faith that's very encouraging. But at any rate, uh, the work with those on the outside as well as those on the inside, uh, there's quite an archive of material. And a little over a year ago, uh, we brought a person in to sort of look over all of that and bring some organization uh, and bring some organization to it. And I've been very excited about that. And so I want, uh, some of you may know James and Marla Walters. Uh, James taught at Harding and then at Boston University and Carissa is their daughter, and she's wonderfully trained and is a person of maximal skills herself. Uh, she delivered a couple of lectures here at Pepperdine a couple of years ago that were based on the work that I've done. But at any rate, she's come and she's working with that material, and I'd like for Carissa to come and just uh, say a word about how we can stay in touch and anything else that she might want to say. Hello, <laughs> I'm Carissa, and just really briefly, as most everyone in this room knows, the impact of Landon's work and the reach of it, and really in many ways, even now as I go through things that I wasn't alive when they were put out, the timelessness of so much of this work, the relevance of it um, today. And sometimes it even feels like it's more relevant today than it was before. Um, I've had the privilege of going through just thousands of minutes and thousands of pages so far of material. And what are really, we really want to be able to do is to make that material available for anyone and everyone who has need of it. And I'm going to tell you, having spent the last year in it, I can't think of anyone who doesn't have need of it. So um, one of the things we've also done is to start sending out a weekly email that has just a short little message from Landon um, that is encouraging, that is focused on one's daily life and the living of that life well. So two things, two requests I have. One, if you would like to get that email, then you can, so I have these cards here, and it has on it the contact information, an email that you can address, you can send. Because my other request is, if you have material at home, if you have pictures of Landon at home from events that he's been at that you don't know what to do with, I want it. 
So um, there's an email address on here for you to be in contact. Also a website that you can go to that's in the process of being updated. Um, so there will be new things there coming as well. Um, if you will get major bonus points for me if you are able to fit your email address and name into this tiny little box. But if you cannot, there's a big white space on the back. And all we need is your name and your email address. I can add you to the list. And not only will you get that weekly email, but you will also um, be able to be notified when new things are coming out. Um, we're really only in the, we're in the first phase of this. So we are very excited about the next steps of making this material available and partnering with as many people as we can um, to maximize its impact. So see me for a card afterwards. There's also ones in the back. Take some with you for other people you think might be interested. Thanks. As you can tell, Carissa's full of passion and she's been so exciting to work with and I'm just enormously pleased that she's with us and doing the work that she's doing. Um, it takes a lot of courage to plow through some of the things that I've messed up over all of these years, <laughs> so she will do that. Dr. Richard Beck, whom some of you may know, uh, teaches at Abilene Christian University, uh, told me a story uh, recently about a student who had come to him, come to his office, and was full of questions, big questions, questions about faith, questions about what's going on in the world. And as the student put the questions to him, he answered and patiently and in his inimitable way. But then he said that he stopped and said, you know, I'd like to ask you a question. And the student paused and he said, would you like to live a beautiful life? Would you like to live a beautiful life? And the student paused, taken a bit aback, and said, yes, I would. And he said, well, if you want to live a beautiful life, then you will have to choose an aesthetic You'll have to choose something to look at that's beautiful and something that relates to your life that's beautiful, something that relates to your speech, the look out of your eyes, your countenance. You will have to select an aesthetic that is beautiful. And I loved that story of that student. He told me that a few years later, he received a call from the student. And the student then said, recalled that event and that moment and how much it had changed the way they had approached their lives. And that's really what Jesus did. Jesus showed us a beautiful life. He showed us what it's like to be a human being made in God's image. He showed us what it was like. 
And I've always loved Nasruddin's stories. Nasruddin was this little philosopher in the East with a little goatee, and he was always saying things that were sort of funny, like, I'll really be surprised if I get out of this world alive. That's sort of one of his. But Nasruddin took his baby into a bank one day, and the bankers all gathered around and just said, oh my, what a beautiful baby. And Nasruddin said, hmm, if you think this is something, you should see the pictures. I think sometimes that we can confuse the Bible. Sometimes we can confuse the church. Sometimes we can confuse a sermon. Sometimes we can confuse religious words with life, the real life that you live every day among friends and neighbors and at work and everywhere. And today there are rival visions of that life. Uh, we've moved along here in this country for many years, basically founded generally on a Judeo-Christian narrative. When I was growing up, everyone shared that narrative. Everyone shared the ethic, everyone shared the morality, everyone shared how we began and whose image we're made and a, the prospect of a future life. But today that shifted somewhat and there are many rival views of what it means to be a human being. I've become a member of a, an interdisciplinary cultural engagement group that features some of the leading experts of the world in fields of astronomy and cosmology, in fields of anthropology and psychology. And it is a group that is also open to religious views, though no one connected with it is particularly religious. But in that, we hear these views, these rival views of what it means to be a person, what it means to be a human being. And I've heard lectures from leading humanists and read their books. Steven Pinker, probably one of the better known, with his latest work entitled Enlightenment, or at least the latest one I'm familiar with, in which he lays out a vision of human life from a purely humanistic standpoint without mention or notion of God. Now, as a communicator of faith, I need to know what that vision is. I will not be able to address it if I am not acquainted with it. Atheism is on the rise across the country, chapters being formed in cities from coast to coast. That's new in this country. Artificial intelligence is conceiving whole new visions of what it means to be a human being as we move into the future and deeper into the age of robots. What does it mean to be a human being? And I've heard them raise the question of, as we are thinking about these rival visions, these new visions of what it means to be 
a human being, they will oftentimes pause and say, but where does soul fit into this? It's interesting, isn't it? Brilliant individuals who are doing some very good work on what it means to be human, and yet wondering about what this concept of soul that has been around all these thousands of years, where does that fit in? Another leading person who is one of the brilliant researchers of the human brain said that the question that he thought about a lot was meaning. You know, if we're able to, to look into the brain and to affect the brain and perhaps do things in the brain that will have profound effects on the physical well-being of people as well as their emotional well-being, he said, we have to ask, what does this mean? And where is it going? And much that is found in the Bible can be found in other sources. The Bible isn't the only source of the information that's in it. Much that is in the Bible can be found in the fields of psychology and philosophy and other world religions. And yet, in this book, which I treasure, because there is a thin thread that runs from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. Or to change the metaphor, there is a pilot light that stays lit in the heart of this long record that gives us history of a people and that tells us about this magnificent, beautiful life of Jesus, a, a thin thread and a pilot light to remind human beings of what matters most in the world. And that's why I've been for many, most of the years of my life a careful student of the Bible because it leads me and guides me to what really matters and particularly to what really matters at the end of one's life. Because as we go through lives, as we tried to say yesterday, we're constantly getting in our own way. We get full of ourselves, and we think we know the important things to know, only after a few years of living to keep refining that as we learn better and new ways of being. But in Scripture, there is this pilot light that tells us what really matters every day and that will and what will really matter on one's final day on earth as we think back through our own history what was it that really mattered that's what's in the bible in a way that i've never found in any other book. And maybe that's why it's the treasure that's always hidden in the field.
And so we have this vision, and the thing that is most on my heart after all of the years that I've lived is still to present human beings with a vision of life that is igniting, that sets them on fire, and that fills them with a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning about what it means to be a human being and particularly how it means how, what it means to be with another human being, how to relate, how to move through the world and not hurt someone. And if we are aware of the rival visions that people have, then we can pick and choose among those visions, not simply what can be condemned, but what we can incorporate into our own vision and our own understanding. The Apostle Paul was probably not the leading expert on Stoicism, which was the basic rival vision of his day. Almost all the common people to whom Paul made addresses would have been influenced by the Stoic philosophy, but never one time did you ever hear Paul do a big outright condemnation of Stoicism. That it's not enough for us to stand back and simply condemn others, judge others, whether it's humanism or atheism or artificial intelligence or whatever. These are simply rival visions of what it means to be a human being. And our task is to be discerning as we look at each of those visions, making common ground, finding common ground everywhere we can in every one of those visions, but then tweaking it a bit based on the treasure of the Bible, the treasure of what really matters. And so, Paul, you would find a good deal of Stoic philosophy in Paul's letters, for example, he knew sort of what to take and use and incorporate and then what to tweak a little bit to bring it in line with the vision of Jesus Christ. And so as people would hear someone like Paul speak about the vision that is found in Christ, even though they have lived the stoic vision of life all of their lives, but somehow when they heard Paul, they heard something that was better. They heard something that was better than the vision that they had. A better way to live. A better way to think. A better way to be with others. And that brought about their saying, I think I will choose that. And that's what conversion is about. Conversion is always about choosing that better vision of what it means to be a human being. And so yesterday we said a few words about church, and I want to come back to that. Because many have been concerned about whether there have been times in our past when we've been a little too legalistic or a little of this. But... I have a friend who said, you know, what we need is to move from legalism to egalism. I liked that. Move from legalism 
to egalism. Because with legalism, we can get bogged down. But with egalism, we fly. We rise with wings like eagles and take off. And I think that what we want to see in churches in their assembly, as well as churches in their unassembled capacity, where we spend most of our time, as we reflected yesterday, there are, ex there are some things that are very exciting that excite me when I see certain churches assembled and unassembled. One of the things that excites me is to find a church who's, who knows how to love the world. To find a church that knows how to appreciate creation. To find a church that knows how to read and how to think and how to visit and how to be with others. It's, a, it's an exciting thing to find churches that are aware of the rival visions that people who sit on the pews are exposed to every day. Rival visions held by their friends. And so that the churches are helping those who sit on the pew to understand what these rival visions are and how best to meet those visions. How to live in such a way that people say, you know, I look at the way you live and I like that better than the life that humanism offers me or atheism offers me. That's our challenge, is to have a vision that's on our own two legs and that people can see out of our eyes and in our faces and hear in our voices this vision of what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. And I, I, I get excited when I see churches that just welcome everyone. Churches who know that anyone who comes into the presence of the love of God, if anything will ever enrich and make their lives better, that's what will do it. Churches that don't sit around wondering now, should we admit this one? Or should we exclude that one? I don't get into arguments over anything that a human being is or a human being does. Because I'm a person of the cross, and that cross has the power to cleanse any and every life that comes into contact with it and make it new. And so I get excited about churches who don't sit around and spend all their time condemning anybody that's different. I don't, I don't get excited about churches that are constantly looking, has this person violated this or this person violated that? But a church with just wide open arms, I learned a long time ago, I treat every single person that I meet on the face of this earth as if they're going to heaven. Is that okay? It ensures that they're going to get my very best treatment. I, I spent a number of years looking at everybody as if they were going to hell. And nobody seemed to want to come very near me. 
But when I shifted that and then began embracing and welcoming, knowing that I serve a Lord who died for every human being on the face of the earth, without condition and without qualification, they don't go through a test. They don't meet any sort of standard. Just come as you are. Come into the presence of this love. Come into the presence of this forgiveness, and it will make life better. I love churches that welcome diversity and that welcome young people, but not just to say we're open to all, but you haven't welcomed people until you've heard them speak. You haven't really welcomed people by saying, it's fine for you to come and sit on our pews. I like churches that sing, I like churches that pray, I like churches that read the Bible, but I also like churches who can talk. The Corinthian church could talk. They talk so much that Paul said, some of you need to be quiet. I would love to be a part of a church where somebody had to get up and say, a few of you just need to be quiet for a little bit. And so if people of diversity come and we hear their voices, maybe one of the reasons that some of the young are leaving our churches is because we've never heard them say a word. They've never been allowed to say, this is what we feel in our assembly and to the church, not just in a classroom to each other but young people who stand up in the midst of the congregation and say, this is what it feels like to be 13 years old. This is what it feels like to be a friend of this person that I don't know what to do with. This is what it feels like to feel like that I'm not worth very much. And that if we heard a woman stand up in the midst of the church and say, this is what it feels like to be a woman in the church. If we could have individuals from various races stand up and say, this is what it feels like to be black in a white church. That somehow we wonder why we can't get along and why we're not doing and having more fellowship. And maybe it's because we just don't hear from anyone that we have, we have constructed churches where we only hear from one or two or three, but we don't hear from the congregation. And before the church can be the community of Christ, it's going to have to do better talking to one another and particularly talking to people who are different. How can we ever get over our differences until we hear someone say, this is what this feels like to me. This is what it's like then we can be. And so I, I get excited about churches that can talk. I love, to, I love to be in a church where after a minister has preached, walks down and says, well, what do you think about that? <laughs> and if there's a boo here, <laughs> maybe that would not be all that bad. But somehow to get back to a sense of real community where it's not just a performance. 
and where everybody is not just a listener. And then we walk out. I love, I love and get excited about churches who know what kind of skills that the members have in the church. That churches are full of people with great skills and they're paid for what they do. But I love to see a church in which the people who are paid for what they do do some things for their community that are free and without charge. What, what would be wrong with lawyers in churches offering some of their services to those who can't afford lawyers free services and let it be known? What if there were accountants in churches who know how to do taxes but who know that there are people in the community who don't know and so do something for free? Take Jesus seriously when he says that sometimes we give expecting nothing in return. That if we could harness these skills, if it's a person who's nerd, if it's a teacher, there are students who can't afford a tutor who could really benefit from an encouraging hand and word from a high school teacher or a grade school teacher. What would it be like if we could somehow ignite and harness all the energies and the skills and the gifts that people who sit in our pews to go out and give some of those skills and some of those gifts for free to the community? What it would, how it would change a community. There's a little church in the northeastern kingdom of uh, Vermont and it's an older church, getting smaller every year. And there was a younger couple that moved into the church, and the older people said, what are we going to do? Because we're all getting old and we're going to die, and what's going to happen to our church? And there was a little grade school, elementary school, just a short distance from where this church met. And they said, well, what if we have, would go over and ask that principal of that school if they need anything? And so they went over and asked, you know, do you need anything? And the principal said, well, there are some little children who come to school every morning hungry, without breakfast. And these older people said, well, we could bring food. And so they got them a little organization together, and they began taking food to this little elementary school and feeding the children. And the principal said, well, some of the children never get their clothes washed. They wear the same thing, their little dirty rags day after day. And so this little group of people said, well, why don't we buy you a washing machine and a dryer? And we'll, we'll buy some new clothes for kids. And the little kids who don't get clean clothes, they could come in the morning and change into something new. And during the day, we will wash and iron their clothes, and then they can put them back on that evening and go home.
and on and on it went. One little elementary school, and then this little tiny church aging had a little dinner and invited anyone to come. And they were surprised. The school principal came first time. Parents of little children came first time until they almost didn't have enough food. So many people came. You know, we keep wondering, why are our own children leaving us? Why are the group called the nuns, those who belong to no religious organization, why are these people now the second largest religious group in the United States of America when our communities are sitting with these churches who are not asking, what can we do? How can we serve? We're sitting here getting smaller and smaller and trying to keep things together and trying to pay our bills. When if only our eyes were open to see that this is a community that meets, yes, on Sunday morning, and yes, we meet to encourage one another, but then we have all week long to live this vision of a beautiful life and to ask, what do you need? How can we love? Where is our kindness needed? Where is our generosity needed? There's nothing on this earth as beautiful as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can just be that church. And I get excited about churches that are striving to put this glorious message of the gospel into language that people can get and understand. There's a lot of arcane religious language that's strange. And in my work with those outside, what I had to find was not the language of the sermon on Sunday morning. They couldn't understand that. They couldn't get the book, chapter, and verse. But when I talked about what their life means, and how valuable each one of their lives is. And when I talked about that there was nothing in the world as, as valuable as your life, because that's at the heart of the gospel. But that heart of the gospel just needed to be translated into the language of the people so that they could hear it and so that they could understand it. And sometimes I would say to audiences, tonight when you go home, I want you to go to a mirror and I want you to look into the mirror and I want you to say, you're the most valuable thing in the world. And I would have people come back the second night, often in tears, and say, we couldn't do it. 
We tried. It's so easy for us to underestimate, isn't it, how we can miss the value of a human being. The value of one human being that brought Jesus Christ to the world and stretched him out on a cross. If there had been only one human being in all the world, I'm absolutely sure Jesus would still have come just for that one human being. We can talk about forgiveness and we can quote the passages on forgiveness, but with those on the outside, when I would walk among the audiences and walk up to one person and fix my eyes on theirs and say to them, if, if, do you know what I would do for you if I could do anything in the world? And the audience would be deathly quiet. And I would say, I would forgive you. And every single time, tears gushed from their eyes. And I would look around and see tears everywhere. Because we talk about forgiveness, but sometimes we forget what a wonderful thing it is to be forgiven. Jesus said, I would like for you to go and tell every creature that we're forgiven. That's why I came to the world. And so I love to see churches that are not just quoting the passages and taking it for granted, but who turn it to language that neighbors and friends can understand and feel the power and the emotion. And so, when it all comes down to, to loving the neighbor as the self, what's that come down to? Doesn't it come down to central to our lives is this vision of the human being made in God's image? It's not easy to talk about God. It's not easy to talk about Jesus. It's not easy to talk about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's not easy to talk about the Bible. But to talk about a life, your life, the only thing that's at risk, the only thing that you have in the last moment of your life, is yourself. What kind of self is it? And this beautiful life of Jesus came and said, of people who wondered about God, who wondered about creation and all of that, who was able to stand in their midst and say, when you have seen me, you've seen God. God loves and relates to you like I do. And then for Jesus to turn around and say to us, if you'll come after me, my Father and I will come and make our home in you. We'll live in you.
so that we become the best picture of God that a neighbor will ever see. You can't really fashion images. You can't really fashion idols. You can't make of this God something of stone or gold. You can't make, make of this God something that's like a diamond. No, when you want to make something like this God, you look at a human being and you say, that is like God. That's what the church is. It's this rival vision of all the visions known to human life. It is this vision of this beautiful life. A life that knows how to love, how to forgive, how to extend mercy, how to be present with another human being. And it's why I have come to believe that the greatest gift that Jesus ever gave to human life was not the gift of birth, and it was not the gift of miracles, and it was not even the gift of resurrection, but it was the gift of being present with another human being. And if we know how to be present with another human being, then birth and miracle and resurrection all find their place. If we don't know how to be with another person, I guarantee you, you'll not be convincing about Jesus' resurrection. These things become more believable when I become more believable and when you become more believable. Christ didn't die to make you more religious. He died to make you more human. Because of all God's creation, there's nothing quite like a human life. And so how do we get there? Before giving you a, a quick list, I want to read from the Bible again. And I want you to listen to this in light of what we've tried to say this morning. If I speak with the tongues of mortals and angels, but have not love, it's nothing. Love is patient and kind. Am I? Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist 
on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Is that who I am? Is that who I am with my neighbors? Is that who I am at work? This is the vision of the beautiful life. And the Ephesian writer said, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. As there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forbearing one another as God in Christ forgave you. And again, conduct yourselves widely toward those outside, making the most of your time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Our climate today is toxic. Divisions are everywhere. Partisanship is everywhere. I just hope that in your community there's a church that knows how to be like this. If religion gets ugly, the light of the gospel goes out. Okay. I want us to look at at some things. Uh, In the Corinthians, there were a lot of problems. Now, we know about problems today. There were a lot of problems. And there were issues that Paul addressed, and let me just, some of them included issues about marriage, the unmarried, virgins. There were issues of judicial matters, marriages of believers to unbelievers. There were cultural issues such as circumcision and slavery. There was food offered to idols. There was how to act when you're eating in the home of an unbeliever. All of those were issues that Paul addressed. Now, 
we have a different set of issues. Today, we face different definitions of marriage, for example. That's relatively new. We're facing expressions of sexual identity in the LGBTQ community in ways that these issues have not quite presented themselves and human lives that we've not known really existed. We have issues about immigration, whether they are appropriately documented or undocumented. We have issues of what the stranger means, particularly as it relates to an immigrant. We have the issue of secularism, which is on the rise. People imagining life without any consideration of God. We're dealing with questions raised by Darwin and Freud and by new knowledge of the universe. We're faced with the issue of globalism that brings all the diversity of the world next door and in our school systems. And we're dealing with the failure of religion so now what do we do as we face these issues? How do we do that? Now, we're familiar with some of the ways we've done it, and some of them are not very pretty. But so I want to give you now some practices. Because to get to the mind of Christ, you don't just read a verse, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and then you got it. That to get the mind of Christ, you have to practice, practice, practice. I've been practicing the things that I'm going to list now for more than 50 years. Practice, practice, practice. It's one thing to talk about the beautiful vision, the beautiful life that Jesus gives, but it's something else to get there. And it takes practice. And so here are some of the things that we have to practice. Paul just puts it all down and he says, now the way you need to behave in the world and before all the issues that you face, he said to the Corinthians, you do it the way I do it. And when you do it the way I do it, you will be doing it the way Christ does it. Follow me even as I also follow Christ. And the context of that passage is, you behave toward those outside the body of Christ the way I, Paul, behave toward those outside the body of Christ, which is the way Jesus behaved toward those outside religion. And so they're going to give us examples of how to do this. How do we live in our community so that the beautiful life emerges? And so that's principle number one, that you find that example of how to do that, how to live in a way that helps people put their faith in God and to see Jesus as the beautiful life that he was. Be imitators of me, 
Paul says, even as I am of Christ. Principle number two is let love be the be-all command. Paul says, owe no one anything but to love one another. Now, you have to practice that. Because once in a while, someone in this audience has probably met someone who is downright ornery. And you'll have to practice. Because you might not be able to love them just all of a sudden. But you've got to practice. Practice. And when you find resentment building toward the other, or discrimination, or prejudice, or bias, then you remember that love conquers all things. And you practice and you go out and you practice and you ask for forgiveness when you fail and you get up and you go out and you practice it again. The third principle is that in the midst of all these issues that we face, that God has called us to peace. Over and over and over, Scripture says, you are called to peace. Christ is the Christ of peace. We are a people of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. You are not a participant in constant conflict and disagreement, disharmony. That's not who you are. You are in the midst of whatever conflict, whatever debate, you are there as a person of peace. Peace oozes out of every pore of your body. Peace is in your speech. Peace is in your eyes. You have been called to peace. There's enough division in the world already for me to add to it. The people of God, the church in any community, is to be that glowing example of peace. And practice, practice. You're going to go out, you're going to engage in conversations, and you're going to come back, and you're going to realize that your speech wasn't very beautiful and helpful. And you're sorry for that. And you practice. You practice. Paul says that for some of the issues that we face, you won't have a command for. He said, you know, with the virgins right now, he said, I really don't have a command from the Lord about this. But let me tell you what I think. That we have permission not to be able to digest and get every issue we face in every life we know exactly right. But the one thing that you can never do is violate love for your neighbor. And I would rather get, I, I can't imagine getting to the judgment and God saying, Landon, boy, I'd love for you to come into heaven, 
but you just loved too much. <laughs> you loved some of the wrong people. You welcomed some of the wrong people. I'm just going to try to love them all and welcome them all and leave it up to God to sort it all out. I heard a little quiet amen. You can say it out loud if you want to. <laughs> Principle number five. We are not to judge the world. God does. Paul makes it explicit and clear God judges the outsider. So would you please stop it? That's not why I'm in the world. Every human being I've ever met already knows they're judged. They don't want me to add, they don't need me to add to it. We are in the world for something besides judging the world. I listen to people sometimes talk about the world, and it's all just condemnation and filth and degradation, and the world's going to the dogs. And who wants to be around you if that's the way you feel, except someone else who feels the same way? And I, I pity your dinners with each other. I was just sort of kidding. <laughs> Principle number six, we are free to associate with the world regardless of their behaviors. Practice. Practice. It's not who you are when you're with someone that agrees with everything you do, that sees everything as you see them and behaves as you behave. The reason you're in the world is to be with those who are not what you think they should be. And you know how to be with them in a way that arouses in them a vision to want to be better. Principle number seven is when you're dealing with difficult issues in other people's lives, don't just deal from three words or six words, but deal with the full range of things. And I'm thinking right now of the debates that are going on about some of the poorest people in the world who look to us as a place where they might could do better. And I understand borders. I understand that order has to be brought. I'm, I'm not talking about the policy. I'm just talking about how you feel about some of the poorest people on earth and what your language is like when you talk about them. Jesus came and in his inaugural message said he brings good news to the poor and to those who are oppressed. We have a decision to make. 
we're either going to be followers of Jesus in this or we're going to be his enemies. There's a way to have feelings about policies without getting downright nasty about human beings who might disagree. Remember that you deal out of love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and kindness and mercy and long-suffering. And you have to practice. It takes practice. The next principle, number eight, and then we're going to have to saw this off, is intimate relationships with unbelievers are occasions for holiness. I have a lot of friends who are not religious. And I treasure those friendships because I can see the work of Christ in them. And I can see the work of holiness beginning to manifest itself in their lives. If I just know how to be present with another human being. And then I'll just go through these others. And if you want this list and you don't get it down, uh, tell Carissa. (laughs) (laughs) Carissa will get you this list. Um, Principle number 10 or 9, is live according to the life to which God has called you. All of this is in Scripture, so you can find it there as you read. Number 10, be free from anxiety. Over and over, Paul tells us, don't be anxious. Your community needs a community of people in its midst who aren't anxious today. Principle number 11 is focus only on those things, those actions and behaviors that bring people closer to God. Paul said eating meat or not eating meat, that doesn't bring anybody either closer to God or take them further away. So, Focus on those things that bring people closer to God. Principle number 12, Paul said, I become all things to all people that I might win some. Principle 13, we are concerned and limit our speech to the things that really matter. Principle 14, we do not raise and impose our conscience on others. Paul says if you're invited into the home of an unbeliever and they offer meat that's maybe been offered to idols, don't let your conscience get in the way. Just eat the meat. This this business, conscience can sometimes be used as a weapon to put other people down. Paul says don't do that. Don't, Don't impose your conscience on others when you're with those on the outside. And then at the end, he says, be imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. Now, 
we began with a beautiful life. And as I come to the end of my own journey in the world, I'm hopeful that this vision of this beautiful life will be ignited in ways that we've never seen before. I understand the problems, but I also know that there are people who are daring to bring the light today. And we pray for those in every place across this entire world who endeavor to bring the light and the love of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and our friends, the places where we work, to our communities. And as we do that, then we can be a part of that group of which Jesus spoke when he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there. Let us pray. Dear God, sometimes we find our words scarce, and sometimes they feel without weight. But we're thankful that we have a light that's in the world. We're thankful that we are bearers of that light. And this morning, we're thankful for every person in this room. May each of us realize the life to which we are called. And may we practice those things that bring the mind of Christ, the life of Christ, present in our lives to the fullest. And to this, for this we ask for your grace and the presence of your spirit always. Through Christ, amen.